Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. So uh, I just pray that today uh, I'm going to preach on a message that I think is going to be pretty hard for many of us. And I think what I'm really praying for and what I was praying for even uh, just in my office is that there will be a sense of vulnerability, openness, and that this message will not just be taken in through one year and out the other. We need to heed the Word of God, and uh, we need to grow in holiness. And this is something that we all need to commit to. It's not an easy process, but I believe that this honors God, this glorifies God. So we're going to turn to... 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses. And as we look at this verse, I want to kind of put this chapter, as we start chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, and put it in a way that will help us to kind of look back to chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, the first three chapters. Paul is encouraging the people because they're recent believers. And now, don't raise your hand, but how many of you know, like, when once you become a Christian, like, in the beginning, it's, like, so exciting. You're, you're, you're like, wow, God loves me. He has forgiven me. But as soon as some weeks and months go by, you hit that wall, and you realize, Lord, this is very, very hard. And many of us have experienced that. And for some of us who grew up in the church our whole lives, you know, sometimes you wonder, like, am I really changing? Is there anything different about my life? I've just gone to church my whole life. But is there anything diff- different? And so this whole time, he's speaking to these young, recent believers and trying to encourage them through this letter to have them to live their lives in such a way that will bring glory to God and will please God, but also let it to be a witness because there are a lot of people in Thessalonica who do not know Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but it seems like a great responsibility to try to live this Christian life in such a way that Christ is exalted in the midst of our struggle and who we still are in our sinfulness, but to be a witness for him so that people can see there's something different about these Thessalonians. That is the same call that we have today. And I think one area that we are majorly failing in when it comes to holiness is sexual purity. So the question I wanted to start off is simply ask this. If, if, if I were to ask the question, now some of us who are already falling asleep, you know, you might just wake up and raise your hand and we're all going to, it's going to be embarrassing for you. So I'm giving you triple warning. Do not raise your hand. But if I were to ask you, how many in this room struggle with lust or pornography or sexual immorality, whatever it is? I'm wondering how many hands will go up. In fact, I would say probably zero to maybe a few of us who just fell asleep and just realized you're supposed to raise your hand. This is not a topic that any of us want to talk about openly. Hence, that's why sin is like a mold. It begins to multiply in darkness. 
And I'm speaking to a lot of us in this room that are addicted to a lot of these things that I believe that Christ wants to set all of us free from. And so we need to have this honest talk as we look at Scripture. Because I can give you a lot of advice of things that I've experienced when I was younger. I could share the stories. We could have other people have come up here and sharing the stories and how God delivered them or set them free. But there is nothing more powerful, even though stories are great, there is nothing more powerful than the Word of God to convict us. And that's why we have to do due diligence in studying the Word not just for the head knowledge, but it will do a heart, the heart surgery so that we will then have the faith to obey. And so my hope and my prayer has been, Lord, illuminate the truth through your word because the truth will what? Set you free. So illuminate the truth through your word and then from there, give us the faith. Give us, give us the the strength to be able to overcome. And I, I, as I was praying, one of the things I realized that some of us, maybe today God is going to do some, once again, heart surgery, but some of us, we need to receive forgiveness. Because a lot of times, the lack of understanding of forgiveness in this one area causes us to go deeper. And so once you experience the forgiveness of God, that's when your heart is more open and softened and the gospel becomes more real to you. And I'm praying that God will do that. I would say out of all the Sundays that I've ever preached, well, not in the early days, early days, I, we went, I was preaching for like two hours. I was like so excited. I would say as I was looking at the pages, this sermon is probably the longest I prepared in terms of pages that I'm going to be preaching to you. So I'm just, even as I'm starting, I'm starting off very kind of like, I don't know what you want to call it, muted, really chill. We're going like 20 kilometers per hour. And I'm going to try really hard not to start jumping up and down and getting too excited because I don't want any external things to try to motivate you I want you to be able to listen and understand because this is such an important topic for us. Not only our church, but I believe this is for the world. Here are some of the stats I want to share with you by Covenant Eyes. Those of you who don't know, Covenant Eyes is a Christian ministry that helps people who are addicted to pornography. And so you install different things in your computer and so, I mean, I mean, I remember when it first came out, some of uh, the brothers were in college. So we're just like, dude, man, this is like hardcore, right? Because pretty much what you do is you install this program, and after uh, a week or so, you can set up when you want it to be shown. It will show you all the websites you visited to your friends. Now, if you're bold, you can send it to your parents. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, but I mean, think about that. That's how the ministry got started, because when pornography was rampant in the 1990s, you got to understand that it literally exploded, and some of you weren't even born. Because when we were younger, in order to be 
exposed to explicit materials, uh, sexual explicit materials, we had to go to these shady stores. And we had to kind of, you know, and so that's why, like, no one went. (laughs) We weren't exposed to this kind of stuff. I mean, there's magazines and things like that. But now, it is everywhere. And you you can look at it at any time. And many of you have many accounts. I won't even go there. You guys know what I'm talking about. Because as I'm counseling, talking with some of you, you know, we're hearing about you have one account for your public face, you know, another account for just your close friends, and another account for perusing, you know, checking out different things. So this is the real stuff. It is everywhere. So this ministry, Covenant Eyes, what they did was they did a, a, a kind of like a survey And this was some years back, uh, about six years ago. So they're going to try to update this. But there's, if you just check online, there's so many different stats on the situation with sexually explicit material. But I just wanted to highlight some of them because as they were doing this, you know, it's it helps to have knowledge, and it helps to understand the situation and the problem that we're not none of us are immune to. In any moment, some of us who have found victory can go right back into it. So let me give you some statistics. Uh, VR, you guys know virtual reality. It will be a 1 billion, that's a B, not an M, $1 billion industry by 2025 in one year. Think about that, $1 billion. It is right behind the VR video games. And some of you are like, oh, yeah, I, I do that. I mean, think about it. it it's, it's exciting when you can actually be in a video game and you feel like you're actually part of it. It, it, it lights up your brain in such a way that you, you feel like you're right in it. Like, can you imagine why VR is so important or such a vital part to pornography now? Because you can actually experience things. And let me just make one more comment. I I forgot to mention it. I'm just going to be very direct with you. Some of you are going to get convicted and feel uncomfortable. And it's not necessarily my intent, but I think that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Some of you might feel at a point where not only is it uncomfortable, but there's going to be resistance. Why? Because there's a spiritual warfare. And Satan loves right where you are because you're not loving God. You're not all in. You're not laying down your life for the gospel because you're addicted and you cannot get out of the situation. You feel guilty because you've repented before and you go through the cycle over and over again. Your heart is apathetic and you are hardened in your heart. And that's exactly where Satan wants you. So there, there will be resistance with some of the things that I'm going to share. Some of us in this room, there's going to be doubts. Because, oh, I try to make those commitments before. I try to do this. And it's going to push down the level of faith that God wants it to rise up. I'm sharing all this because you have to understand that this morning, this is like, I would say, this one of the tougher messages throughout this book. And I want to just encourage us. I am not here to bang you over the head like you sinner, you messed up. But I want to bring knowledge and understanding and truth and what the Word of God says so that you will not live a subpar life that some of you have been living for the last I don't know how many years. 
I want you to live to the fullest, to what God has promised us in John chapter 10, verse 10, where he says he has come to give us life and to give it abundantly. We, we got to believe that. We got to understand what that means for us. So VR is going to be a problem. More people are going to get addicted because when you are in VR, being a psych major, it lights up different parts of your brain that that's what leads to addiction. That's why you have seen people who are addicted to video games. And it's a problem. Those of you who are addicted to video games, it's the same addiction, part of the brain for pornography and drugs. You cannot break out of it. That's why it's so hard. I've seen many people who are addicted to different things. They have no purpose in life. They're not moving forward. They're not living for the kingdom of God. That's why it is so elusive and it is something that Satan is using because he doesn't want you to live for God's purposes. He wants you to be lazy. He wants you to get caught up. He wants you to feel that guilt, condemnation. Here's another statistic. 90% of teens and 96% of young adults are encouraging, accepting, or even neutral about pornography. We're just pretty much saying almost every single person, 9 out of 10, if not 10 out of 10, they are either encouraging or accepting, or they can just be neutral because they don't even know how to have a stance on this, on the issue of pornography. 55% of adults and 25 and older believe that pornography is wrong. So at least the older you get, the more wiser you get, right? You begin to realize, oh, maybe this is not really good for me. Oh, this is hindering different areas of my life. The next picture that you'll see is the percentage of the various generations. And you will notice that 43% of teens believe porn is bad for society. And it, I thought it was interesting because when you become a young adult, they don't think it's that bad. It's only 31%. But then it jumps up to the millennials. They say, yes, because they're a little bit older now. They have families now. They realize, okay, this is not good. It's not good for my marriage. It's not good for my kids. It's not good for just my mind. And so the older you get, you begin to understand that. And the Gen Xers, because we all have problems, are only 44%. I'm a Gen Xer. So it's only 44. And then 59% of the boomers, the older ones, are saying that this is not good and it's wrong. 57% of teens search out porn at least monthly. And that's eight years ago. Now, the recent statistic says that it's 79% for men and 76 for women. A lot of this deals with teens because we're still trying to discover ourselves and, you know, all the hormones going through our bodies and things like that. But I want you to think about it. Eight out of ten people. I could just count ten people in this room. And as soon as we get to eight, all of them are looking at porn on a regular basis. Sixty-eight percent of divorce cases involve one person meeting a new lover over the internet. Whether it's that ex, whether it's that person that you were interested in when you were younger, but now many people are getting divorced because they found somebody else on the internet. 56% involved of the divorce cases, 56% involve one person being obsessed over porn or addicted to porn. 
And those of you who don't know, you just do the research. You can just Google it. You'll find out that it has a lot of physical aspects to it that hinders. Also, the intimacy. There's psychological things that are going on. It affects people. And then 70% of wives diagnosed or who have been diagnosed with PTSD uh, because they found out their, their spouse is an addict, a sex addict who's addicted to pornography. So it affects people. And now statistics are finding out that 60 to 70% of men and then 25 to 30% of women in the church are addicted to pornography. So even if I were to do a survey, anonymous, I think it will look very similar to what we see here. And I would, I would like to propose it's probably even worse in Asia. But with all the shame and all the things that are attached to it, I think it's, it's just something that we don't talk about. Also because we're such a performance-driven and it's all about results because there's a reward and reinforcement aspect to pornography or any addictions that I believe that there are probably more people in Asia that are addicted to pornography. For sure, video games. But I would definitely say in this particular area. Why am I giving you these stats? You can find it all online. But this, these stats explain why the church has lost its effectual voice to speak into this world that lives in darkness, that do not know Jesus Christ. Because it is in the church that we have people who are struggling with this. You cannot talk about something and be passionate about it, believing in it, if you have, your, if you have not experienced it. You cannot talk about freedom if you haven't experienced that. You cannot talk about how good the gospel is if you haven't genuinely experienced it. Not just through the head knowledge, but genuinely it has transformed your life. That's why many of us struggle with sharing the gospel at work as well as with our friends, our family members, because we ourselves don't see the transformation. Those people who are excited about sharing the gospel, those people who are evangelists at heart, it's because they've experienced a genuine change of life because of the gospel. That's why they're able to share it. So we're going to jump into chapter 4, and like I said, it's going to be uncomfortable, but I think this is something that we have to talk about, and that's why it's in the Bible. That's why Paul brings it up to the people of Thessalonica. As we continue in this eternity series, I'm praying that this will help us to experience greater freedom uh, throughout not only today, but in the weeks to come, especially we're in Lent as we get closer to Good Friday and Easter. So let me give us the one thing. The one thing is simply this. Our walk with Jesus is more important than our talk about Jesus. That our walk with Jesus is more important than our talk about Jesus. Oh, we're good at talking about Jesus. But it's our walk that we have a problem. And we need God to help us to live according to what he has told us through his word. I'm going to talk about two specific things and how that Walking with Jesus and for Jesus, it's going to help us to just be more than just talkers about Jesus. The first thing that I want to talk about, and I think this is where he addresses the core issue, 
is we must walk in holiness. That we must walk in holiness. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians. And listen, listen to what Paul says. He says, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do this more and more. For you know that in what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to pause here because I want to establish something. This is very important as we talk about walking in holiness. The Apostle Paul connects the start of chapter 4 right here with what he mentioned in chapter 3, verse 10. you got to see the connection. So let me read First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. It says this in the ESV. I want you to read the yellow section with me. It says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and what? Come on, say this. Supply what is lacking in your faith. So I want you to think about this. There's nothing that we lack when we trust in Jesus Christ. But he's talking about the outgoing of the faith, the, the living out of the faith. There's some things that are lacking. In fact, let me read it from the New Living Translation. It says this, Night and day we pray earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again to what? Fill the gaps in your faith. So by trusting in Jesus Christ, we have everything we need. But the practical living out of this faith there are some gaps. That's why in this particular context, as I mentioned and started off, like we're trying to love God, we're trying to do the soap, we're trying to pray, but we're addicted to video games or pornography or whatever it is. So there are these gaps that I think all of us feel in our lives, that we're trying to obey God, we're trying to do these things, but there are things in our lives, in our faith, that are gaps. Or things that are lacking. And I want you to understand that even though the Thessalonians were standing firm in their faith, they were still lacking in their walk with Christ. Once again, they were baby Christians. And that's why they needed to develop spiritually, which I think many of us, some of you have only been a Christian for several years, you need to keep on growing. Let's go ahead and just, let me kind of, maybe this is the best way I could just put it. He starts chapter 4 to lay down the foundation for obedience and holiness, which is not motivated by punishment or obeying rules or things to avoid. That is not his intent, but rather he is trying to motivate them to live a certain way, to live in holiness because of your love for Jesus. So I, I want us to pause here for a moment and just think about that. Because here we are in Asia where many of us, we obey because out of fear, fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of receiving punishment, it's one of the greatest motivators in Asia. I was just thinking about that. I should use it more often. Scare the living daylights out of you then we'll all have people just externally obeying. But you guys know that doesn't last very long. And that's not true change. Because whenever you're motivated by fear, that shows you that it's really self-centered. And you see this all over the place. Why do you study, those of you who are students? 
There's something called the final and your grade and you, you might not get your scholarship. That's a great motivator. Trust me. It motivates you really well. That fear. Some of us who might be not getting that promotion, you might be fired from your job because you're not performing. It is a great motivation. That fear of losing the job. But that kind of motivation does not bring genuine change. What is the genuine change? You study because you realize it's a privilege and that with the knowledge that you're gaining, you could then use that later on on the mission field, which is going to be your workplace. There's a sense of purpose. You want to be able to show people that God has given you the ability to study. So that what? So that other people can respect you and want to follow. If you're not doing well in school, other people who care about school, they're not going to respect you. You could be the most funniest guy, you could be the nicest person, but they're not going to follow you because that's what they value. So you're doing your best, not for yourself, but that it's going to be an opportunity to share Christ. Same thing as work. If you get motivated because you might lose your job, you're going to always be doing things when you have to or when the boss is looking or when they're requiring or at the end of the year, they're doing all these reviews. But when you see yourself, this is a job that God has given that out of his grace and mercy and that in this opportunity, here's my mission field and I get to share Christ and love people that he has called me to, then your motivation to do well and to get up every single morning to go to work is completely different. So he's trying to lay this foundation of holiness and obedience to God, but not motivated by fear, but it's driven and motivated because we love God. That's why one of the key phrases in verse 1 is how you ought to work, or excuse me, how you ought to walk and to please God. The word walk is used to describe how we ought to live. That's the same word. Whenever you see to walk, it means to live. You'll see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to what? Walk in a manner worthy of of the calling in which you have been called. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, same idea. So as to, come on, say this with me, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing good fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So once again, Paul, he said it to the people in Colossae. He said it to the people in Ephesus. Now he's saying it to the people of Thessalonica. He's simply saying that everything that we do, it should be motivated because we love God and we want to please God. Paul uses then, that word urge, in verse 1, you will notice that word urge. It is translated as encourage. He wanted to push the Thessalonians to live in a way that pleases God, but he wanted to, them to do more and more of it. So they were doing it, but he says do more of it. That the way you live your life, it should be to please God and to glorify Him and to honor Him and make sure that that is your motivation and do more and more of it. In verse 2, as we read, he emphasizes what? The instructions that he's going to give now is not from his own authority, but in Jesus' authority. That's why it is important that he establishes this. I'm going to tell you some things that are going to be hard, but it's not under my authority, but Jesus, because this is his heart. And I pray, as Paul was probably thinking, that as you hear this, may you be motivated, not because of fear, not because of me, Apostle Paul, saying it to you, but because you love God, you want to please him. So Apostle Paul now 
starting from verse 3, he exhorts them to do two things that comes when it comes to walking with God. So he clearly establishes it should be motivated by the love of God and you want to please him. And then he goes into two specific areas. The first one is to pursue sexual purity. One of the things that you need to understand is that during this time, and this, is, this will help you, during the Roman Empire and throughout history, sexual immorality was rampant. You, you thought it was bad now, but back then it was really bad. So it's all relative in many ways. You know, you could say, oh, life is so hard, or this is so... They were struggling with sexual immorality even back then. So it shows that nothing's new. Therefore, as Christians, they were at a point where they had to challenge culture by living in holiness because they want to please God. They don't want to please themselves anymore. They want to please God. And that's why they have brought forth hostility from the outside world because they could not understand why are you trying to disrupt what is accepted and it's okay. That's why a lot of times when you live in holiness, people will not like you. Now, I think there's some good reasons why they don't like you because you're like, you're a sinner. You know, I, how do you do it? Why can you do that? No one's going to like you. But sometimes you might have to say no to certain things. There's certain places you might not want to go to. There's certain things you, might, you can't join them for various reasons. But you'll find other ways to love on them and serve with them and to help them. And, but once again, to live in holiness might mean that people from the outside will not understand. Why, are you, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you participating in this? Which I believe is a great opportunity to share your faith. So here, the young believers... In Thessalonica, they struggle with this old way of life, with lust and immorality, which was very rampant and accepted in society. So here they are, these young Christians who are trying to fight off sexual temptation and lust, and it was so difficult. That's why I think this is so relevant for us in our culture, in our generation right now. Let's continue on as we read verse 3 and 4. It says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now he's getting started. As the believers were trying to overcome their old way of life, they were confronted and conflicted with this worldview which required a renewing of the mind and a commitment to purity. Because once again, they're fighting this cultural worldview that says sexual immorality is not that bad. L let me put it in a way that you can understand. They were so laxed, very kind of loose with sexual things, because many of these men, and it wasn't just men, there were some women, but majority men, Many of these men were having sex with prostitutes and slaves and other males. And the hard part about this culture is that many of these sexual practices were connected to these Greek gods and the worship of these gods. Like princes, like the goddess of Diana. Like there were like these gods that they were worshiping that that's how you worship is through sex. 
So you live in a culture like this, and you didn't know Christ, and this is your normal way of life, and you think it's okay. It's part of the normal part of just living your life, and all of a sudden you are confronted with the message of the gospel, and you realize, I cannot keep on living like this. There has to be a change. That's why Paul is trying to write this letter to urge them, to encourage them, because this is a hard topic, because we're talking about completely changing your worldview. This is why I believe one of the biggest problems in the church, and it doesn't matter what culture you're from, is that there's syncretism, which simply means that there's a mixing of worldviews. So it's amazing, just even in, in, in the Korean culture, because when I became a Christian and my siblings became a Christian, my parents started coming out to church, and when I began to witness in the Korean church is that there are a lot of things that are very Korean in culture that's mixed in with Christianity. And now as I'm older, you realize those are directly against Scripture. But that's part of the Korean culture. You'll see this in the Chinese culture. There's a lot of things in the Chinese culture that are not Christ-centered, but as many Christians in the Chinese circles have become followers of Jesus Christ, they mix a lot of the old worldview with the worldview that the Bible talks about. That's why sometimes it is easy to be okay with a lot of things that are not biblical. Like, let me give you one example. I hear this all the time from parents. So parents will say uh, to the kids, hey, right now your job is just to study. Don't get so involved in church. You're, you're, you're getting too excited for Jesus, and you know, you don't, don't do all that stuff. Every time I hear this from parents, okay, I won't tell you my honest thought. Okay, <laughs> sorry, because then I, I'm going to be distracted here. Every time I hear this, I just simply say, can you prove to what you just said to your child through Scripture? Because every time I turn the page, it talks about our life is short. We don't know when we're going to die. Jesus Christ can come back in any moment. So that's a good example of this worldly, cultural mindset. It talks about success, making a lot of money. Which in many ways, God is not against money. God is not against being successful. But he is against pursuing things that become your God except for Jesus Christ. So we are in the midst of family and people, friends around us that tells us that a worldview that is so contrary to Scripture, and some of us are literally wading in this whole sea of secular thought, and we don't realize how anti-Scripture it is, anti-Bible, anti-God, anti-cross it is. We just accept it. Oh, because he's an elder or, you know, She's a deacon in the church, so, or he's a leader, so it, it, it must be okay. Don't be fooled. I don't care who it is, even if it's me. If I cannot back it up with Scripture, then you could just ignore it. You better be able to back it up with Scripture because I'm, let, me, let me try to balance this out here. There is some common knowledge or wisdom. Like, don't go outside when it's cold when you just take a shower. There's nowhere in Scripture that tells you, thou shalt not go outside when you take a shower, all right? There isn't. But it's just common knowledge, wisdom in that. 
So there are a lot of things like that. So I'm not saying that some of the things that your parents are saying is wrong, but I'm just simply saying if it's clearly against Scripture, then we have to start thinking, like, why are they saying this? Because most likely they love you, they care for you, they want the best for you. I would also put a little caveat in there because they want to live their dreams through you, which is a sin, but sometimes that's our parents. So here they are struggling in this one area of sexual purity and sexual immorality because this is how it was accepted because it was a worship of their gods. But now as they cross this line, they realize, I cannot do that because I worship Jesus Christ. I want to please him. And so the things that I used to do does not bring honor, and it doesn't glorify God. It doesn't please God. So here they are in this conundrum, and they are torn because they're conflicted. What can we do? Because I know I shouldn't do this, but it's like everywhere, and this is how I grew up, and I'm addicted, and this is what's happening. And I want us to kind of think about our culture regarding sexual purity. I don't know when your first time when you were exposed to pornography. But a lot of times they're doing studies and realize when you get exposed to it will really determine in terms of the addiction level later on. I remember we were junior high kids. And just some friends from the neighborhood. And this one guy said, come over to my place because I want to show you something. You know, we're junior high kids. We're like, what, what, what? So we go and we realize that that guy's father had a collection of Playboy magazines. And so here we are just, you know, we haven't even gone through puberty yet. right? But we just know that something was very arousing. So we're looking through the, whoa, you know, so here we are looking through this thing. Now, there are some people that when you begin to talk to you, you realize they were exposed to it when they were seven. There were things that they saw when they were much younger because they had access on their phone. And so when you think about this culture where the phone and the internet has come in, we're talking about that age is getting less and less in terms of when they first get exposed to pornography. That is why it fed this whole hookup culture. That's why this friends with benefits come into the picture. It wasn't like that in the past. But it's like that now because it is rampant around us. And I want you to understand in Judaism, because a lot of these people were Jewish in background, this is now first time it's beyond Jerusalem. So now these are Gentiles, these are pagans, people who didn't know Jesus Christ or the foundation of Yahweh. So in Judaism, as many of you will know, the worldview is that God is the one who created man and woman. God is the one who created sex. And God is not going to kill joy who doesn't want you to enjoy sex. And that's the other extreme. There are people in the church that they think sex is bad. And so therefore, they're very prudish or they just, you know, that's the other extreme. But sex is good. God created sex. It's a good thing. But in in the context, in the confines of marriage. So now what you begin to see is that here are these Jewish people 
That is a teaching that they grew up with. And because they had a stricter view of what sex and marriage was supposed to be like, that it literally confronted some of the worldviews of these early Christians who were not coming from a Christian background. Let me just say this. God's commandment about sex, it was not to rob people of pleasure, but rather it was to protect us so that we might not lose the joy that God had intended and created for it to do. That's why in verse 3, it says, abstain from sexual immorality. The word sexual immorality in the Greek is pornea. That word is where we get the word pornography. Pornea, or sexual immorality, is obtaining sexual pleasure outside of the will of God. And outside of the will of God is in marriage. Now, Paul gave similar command to the believers in Rome, uh, in Rome who were struggling with trans... You thought transgender issue was like a new thing? Nuh-uh. <laughs> You'll see it in the Bible. You thought homosexuality is like the last 30-some years? Uh-uh. It was in Scripture. All kinds of sexual immorality. You could, they just added letters, LGBTQT, AIQ, plus, plus, whatever, division, divided by, you know, you, you, they're just, it's going to get longer and longer. Listen to what he says to the people of Rome when there, it was, there was sex going on like crazy, and that was a culture. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't stop, they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became, say the yellow section with me, dark and confused. All this sexual or this identity confusion, there's a reason why, as the scripture tells us. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worship idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24, say this yellow section with me. So God abandoned them. This word, a phrase is going to appear again. I want you to just remember this. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they deviled and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worship and serve the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the woman turned against a natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And men, instead of having normal sex relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. As a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Now, if you just read this, you're like, whoa, God is like really harsh. He's not a loving God. What is this? I want you to understand, and, and those of us who are new, if you don't really know our church, um, there are people who struggle with same-sex attraction. There are people who struggle with different sexual addictions. And so I'm not sharing this to shame you or to beat over your head and kind of reinforce the negative view of Christians that they're so judgmental. 
But I want you to understand the genesis of why certain people view it this way and why it's important to understand from Scripture. Because what God was saying and Paul, through Paul was that God created things so that people can worship Him. But instead of worshiping God, they decided to worship themselves and other things. Once you go down that path, trust me, all these things that we just saw, it becomes natural. Because think about your life and the things that you're addicted to, and even if some of you in this room struggle with sexual immorality, pornea, think about it. A lot of times those things are what you want. And let's just be very honest here. Can, can we at least be real about this? Every single thing that we do that's a sin against God is a very self-centered thing. Think about it for a moment. It's about your desires, what brings you pleasure, what you want, or what you don't want. So that's why you will notice that self-centeredness, the narcissism that we see in this generation, all the selfies, there's a reason why they call it selfie. In this generation where narcissism is breeding like crazy, we're not living for God. We're living for ourselves. That's why any offensive word, it hurts us. And I'm thinking, girl, boy, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's going to come your way that's going to hurt your feelings. That's why in the United States, and even here a little bit, but more so in the, there's cancel culture. Now things are, I feel like slowly people are waking up. Like, what is a woman? What, what is it? I don't know. Uh, talk to the bio major, but then they won't even say it because they, they don't want to get canceled. We can't even speak the truth anymore because of all the narcissism where people are saying, you're offending me, you're hurting me. And I'm saying, wake up because there's going to be things in life that's going to be so hard. I'm telling you right now, it's going to be so hard. It's going to shatter your narcissism one of these days. You got to wake up. Life is hard. It's going to get harder, especially if you want to live for Jesus Christ. You might even have to die for your faith. That is, has nothing to do with you and all about Jesus. And when you take offense of some of these things, I'm telling you right now, it is going to be very difficult. It's going to be a long road for you. What Paul is simply saying is that God abandoned them because he, what he's saying is this. You want to live like that? You, you're going to turn away from me? I'm going to be loving. I'm going to be patient. I've been trying to show you. I brought different people your way. But you still, in your narcissism, in your self-centeredness, in your selfishness, you live for yourself. And God says, you know what? If that's what you desire, then you go for it. How do we get this? Listen to how the message translation translates this verse. What happened was this. People knew God perfectly well. But when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that they, uh, there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. So it makes you directionless. You, you, you don't know what it is that you're doing in life. You have no purpose. They pretended to know it all, but were illiterate regarding life. They traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands for cheap figurines that you can buy at a roadside stand at, you know, Jordan. Uh, 
So God said, in effect, if that's what you want, that's what you get. It wasn't long before they were living in a pigeon smeared and with filthy inside and out. This was not the bird nest soup, okay? Come on now. We're simply saying it's really bad. And all this because they traded the true God for a fake God and worshiped the God that they made instead of the God who made them, the God we bless, the God who blesses us. Oh, yes, worse followed. Refusing to know God, they soon didn't know how to be human either. Men didn't know how to be a woman. This is when I want to just drop the mic and say, I'm out of here. What is a woman? I don't know. Well, the Bible, anyway, I, I, I won't go there, okay? Let, let me, let me just, okay, let me, now I'm going to check my spirit here. There are some of us in this room that struggle with this. And I know some of you have friends who are transgender, and you're very passionate about some of these issues because you love them and you care for them. And so by the laughter, we're not trying to belittle or not care about you or your friend. I think the irony is that the Word of God clearly teaches us what it is for what it is, <laughs> clearly what the thing is, but it's because, once again, we abandon God. That's why we're given over to our narcissism and our self-centeredness and the way we live for ourselves. Men didn't know how to be men. Sexually confused, they abused and defiled one another. Women with women, men with men, all lust, no love. See, here's the part that I think many of us forget is a lot of times some of these issues, even some of you who might be in relationship, you think it's really love, but it's not. A lot of it is lust. Lust is self-centered. Love is other-centered. Can I get a good amen to that? When you struggle with lust, it's a sign of narcissism and self-centeredness. Because what you want to gratify yourself, that's what lust is. But love is you're thinking about the other person and what's best for them. And then they pay for it. Oh, how they pay for it. Empty of God and of love, godless and loveless wretches. Now, if this is your first time in a church... (laughs) And first time reading Romans, you're like, ah. But hold on. Get to chapter 8. It's good stuff. Even chapter 5 is good. But chapter 8 is awesome. So don't just stop with chapter 1. Chapter 1 is telling you the bad news before the good news, all right? Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to live with sexual purity because this is the will of God. It is God's will that we are sanctified, which simply means, sanctified means to be set apart, to be holy. It is a, the whole, to be holy means it's a process of becoming more devoted to God and becoming more like him. That's what it means to be holy. That's why God said in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Even Apostle Peter quotes this Leviticus chapter 20, and he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This is why if we are genuine followers of Christ and we want to do the will of God in order to please him, that means that we have to pursue 
holiness. Holiness is not compatible with sexual immorality. If you want to be holy, then you've got to give these things up. And this is what God desires for us to be holy. Let me just quickly go over some of these. Others. I'm going to have to skip over some stuff here. But you'll see in verse 4, it talks about how you've got to control your own body. The word body can be translated in two different ways, and this will help us to understand what Paul is saying. Like, because that word is used in so many different contexts, some of the scholars can't really tell what is he trying to refer to. But at the bottom of this whole thing, the bottom line, it's still speaking about the same thing. The word body is first translated as a container or a vessel. Therefore, in a metaphorical way, a person who learns to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, what that means is this body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the way you use it, the way you do things, it is the container and the vessel of the Holy Spirit. So make sure you live your life with your body in a way that is holy and honorable to him. Another translation of that word body it can be taken as a wife. So therefore, in verse 4, as we just read here, can, can mean to acquire a wife. So if it says control your body, it's translated as to acquire a wife in a holy and honorable way that will not be lustful pursuits or lustful passions, but do it in a way that honors God and honors that sister. So regardless of how it's interpreted, is it a body or is it a wife? Regardless of how you interpret this, and many scholars will be divided on this, it simply means that a person's sexual life, the way they live their life and use their life, their bodies, or the way they procure or to find this wife, that do it in a way that is honoring, do it in a way that is holy, that pleases God. That's why in verse 5, we are reminded that we should not live in passionate lust like the pagans or the Gentiles because they don't know God. So those of us who know God, Jesus Christ, in this room, the way we live our lives or the way we use our bodies should be one that is honoring to him as if we know him. That's why whenever I meet people who are not believers and they live in sin, <laughs> like, really do I, I mean, what, what are you supposed to do? They don't know Jesus, so that's why they live this way. That's why they live together. Because they're not believers. It makes sense for them. But if you are a believer and you're living with someone that's not, you're not married to, then clearly it's not good. And let's not be stupid in this generation, because when you're living together, you're probably having sex together. That's the reality of it. Unless you want to open up your life and put a camera, a CCTV in there and watch how you live your life. This is the reality. So he's saying pursue sexual purity. Listen, let me close out this first point. I know, it's, like I said, I warned you ahead of time. It's long. So I'm going to skip over. I'm skipping over a bunch of stuff. We're going to get through this. Jesus' name. Come on. The point that I wanted to make... Number one is we must walk in holiness, and the way we walk in holiness is we pursue sexual purity, and the second aspect of it is that we prioritize relational integrity. Let's read verse 6 through 8. This is important. That no one transgresses or wrongs his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger. 
You got the original Avenger here. And all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Verse 8, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let me just quickly go over this. This is important. As Paul was talking about individual sexual purity, your body, he now addresses how a person's sexual impurity affects other people. The thing that we have to mention is that God is constantly trying to bring up the importance of relational shalom. Shalom is the wholeness, living at peace. This is what God desires. This is what we saw in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This shalom, this peace, the wholeness that God has brought. He's always pursuing after that. This is why Christ followers are supposed to be different from the world. That's why when you are in a conflict with somebody, you don't start gossiping and doing the, what the world does, but you go to them, you re- humble yourself, you reconcile if you hurt them. If you don't know, if someone approaches you, don't be like, huh, okay, yeah, whatever, yeah, I kind of did that. No, you, if that person has been hurt, you go to them and you say, I'm, I'm really sorry if I've hurt you. That was not my intent, but if you got hurt by that, I'm sorry. Why? Because relational shalom is so important to God because that is the epitome in some ways of the gospel that we were separated and enemies with God but Jesus, God sent Jesus Christ his son to come to bridge the gap so now we will be friends with God because he has broken the enmity between us and him. So that's why relational shalom is very important scripturally. Now sexual purity is one area that can be I believe that we can be different and shine the light. So once again If we don't use pornography, it will be different than the world because the world says, hey, it's okay. You're not hurting anybody. When we don't have one-night stands, it's different and it will shine the light because we're saying that I don't even know that person or I do know them and I don't want to hurt them for my own sexual pleasure. When we don't have friends with benefits and even if they're in the church because we don't want to hurt them. And so... He's arguing this aspect of not just sexual purity for yourself, but he says the things that you do sexually, it affects other people and it breaks the relational integrity. This is why in verse 6 he mentions wrong his brother in this manner because it is dependent on how you interpret that word body in verse 4. Because if you understood body, that word, as the wife, then it's reference to adultery. If it's understood as body, then it's reference to sexual immoral acts. And so what he's simply saying is don't wrong somebody, your brother or your sister. Now, Paul gives two specific reasons why we should not take advantage of others and how sexual purity affects other people. He makes it very clear. Verse 6, he mentions about how God is the ultimate avenger. He is the one who will come and judge people for sin and therefore facing the wrath of God should stop us, that the wrath of God is going to come. And then he uses the second way in verse 7. He reminds the believers that when we sin against people, it goes against God's calling for every single believer. Let me me put it this way so that some of you can understand what Paul is trying to say. Sexual sin affects people because it objectifies one another. And we abuse and use each other for our own gratification, 
without thinking about that person. Maybe this will help. Ladies, how should I say this? This is, this is when I run into, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just getting inspired out. This might be prophetic preaching, so watch out. Ladies, don't raise your hand, but you could just give me one of those, mm-hmm, yeah, pastor, go ahead, preach, preach, preach. Ladies, how many of you have been in a conversation with a brother and you see their eyes roaming all over the place? How does that make you feel? Because what's happening is that brother is objectifying you and looking at you in your body. Now, I know there's some insecure women who love it when they get all the attention. I get it. But when you object, objectify a person, that relational harmony or shalom is broken. Let me put it in a different way. No, I won't put it a different way. I, I'm going to just read scripture. <laughs> I, I'm going to stick to scripture. Let me, let, me, let me read scripture to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 through 20. I'm going to read the New Living Translation version. I want you to say the yellow section with some conviction, okay? Are you ready? Here we go. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one with her body? For the scripture says the two are united into one, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one in spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin is so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. Once again, it's not about you. For God brought you, bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Here's a message translation. You don't have to read the yellow. I'm just going to rewrite through this. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is such a spiritual mystery as physical fact. This is why what he was trying to argue in these other translations is that you become one. There's a mystery that you become one with that person. As written in Scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy. This is what's important. There's a lack of intimacy and a lack of commitment leaving us what just you could say this one more lonely than ever before the kind of sex that can never become one if any of you in this room have ever participated in sleeping with somebody where it's not in the context of marriage you know that feeling where if that person then leaves or whatever it, there's a sense of loneliness this is scripture that reminds us something that we all feel if you've gone through this. More lonely than me. Thinking that by you getting close to that person, you'll feel very close and intimate, but in fact, you get more lonely. There is a sense in which sexual sin are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies, these bodies that were made for God given and God molded love for becoming one with one another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place for the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't even live however you please? 
squandering what God paid such a high price for, which is you. He paid a high price for you and for me. The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to a spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body. If we're going to prioritize relational integrity, we have to live with purity with one another. If you can wrong a brother or a sister, then what's going to happen is that it's going to break the bond of peace. Okay, let me put it this way. Man, I'm, I'm going I'm to put myself in trouble. It's okay. I, I, don't, I don't mind. I'm not here to try to please you. Some of you will probably know different people in your life. How many of you have been part of a church or even in our church where two people went out and it didn't work out? What happens to them? Let's just be really honest here. Honest talk. Either one of them leaves the church or both of them leave the church. That's a fact. So that relational integrity, the bond of peace, because we're a family, what happens is it's broken because your sin against that brother or against that sister. Because I don't know if many of us are mature enough to date, which I think it's good to date because you get to find out who that person is and if this is the person you want to marry. But the problem is many times when we start dating, we get physically involved. Even after that first date, we get physically involved. So now you have violated what 1 Corinthians talks about, that you are now sexually involved. And when you then break that off or you realize that person is not the one, this person has now been wrong in the sense where you lose that relational integrity. This person's hurt. Let me come from a different angle so that you can understand. I, as a person, I'm looking for a wife, let's just say. And then there happened to be three girls. And here I am looking for a wife, and I'm like, oh, okay, I like this about her, I like this about her but not that, but I like this about her, but not the other stuff that the other girl has. So guess what happens? So here you are, you're turning to the player, and then all of a sudden, you're checking out these girls. Why relational integrity and purity is so important is because the things that you're doing, brothers, to those sisters, because one of them might not, or if not, excuse me, two of them might not, be your future wife, only one of them will, or none of them will be your future wife. So therefore, that is translated to say that these three sisters that you are interested in, that you're playing around with, listen to me carefully, will be someone else's wife. Are you with me? Brothers, can I ask you? Let's say you find the woman of your dreams, and you're like, oh my Lord, this, this is it. I knew, like, God, you destined this. And then you found out later that one of the guys from your class did all this stuff to her. How would you feel? Oh, it's okay. Hey, bro, what's up? It's okay. Are you kidding me? But let, let's be really honest, brothers. See, this is, when you're not honest, you're not tapping into that deep core of your heart. You will be, can I say that word? You will be pissed off. You will be upset. You will be so upset that that guy from your class, because we're the, I don't know, salmon or goldfish class, and here we are. 
here we are. Here we are, the goldfish class. And that guy you saw since freshman year, you were even thinking about rooming with him, or you might even room with him one year. And you found out that this guy did all this stuff to this girl who is not his wife, but it's going to be your wife. And you found out, you're going to tell me you're going to keep this relational integrity? No way. There's no way. But do you see that double standard? That here we are, we want some of these girls to be a certain way, but then we're the ones who are actually for other future brothers, not helping that relationship. And ladies, and I'm not going to even go to ladies now. There's a whole slew of things. Come on. But let me stay focused. Let me give you scripture, okay? Back to scripture, back to scripture, back to scripture. Paul talked about treating one another as a family. Listen to what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat brothers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. With what? Come on, say this. Absolute purity. So there might be some sisters that you're interested in, but you got to treat them as if they're your sisters in Christ. How many of you guys have siblings? Opposite gender siblings, right? Most of us, right? Can you imagine being like, hey, little sis, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That is my point. What you, what you experience in that very moment is exactly what Paul is trying to say. Treat that woman, if she's older, treat her like your mother. Treat her, if they're younger, treat her like your sister. This relational integrity means that not only am I going to control my own body and this passionate lust, but I am not going to, in a very narcissistic, self-centered way, do things for myself. I'm just going to close out with point number two. It's simply this. We must not only walk in holiness, but we must walk in humility. Let me just read verse 9 through 12 and let the word speak for itself. I'm going to shut up here because uh, it's, it's already time, and this, this should be like a two-part series. I should, have, I should have done it a little bit better here, but anyway. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Verse 11. And inspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. After he talks about sexual purity, as he talks about pursuing holiness... He now talks about walking in humility. Why? Because it's about the relationship in the body of Christ. Because when you walk with humility, it is no longer about you, but you're going to want to serve and love the brothers and sisters around you. You know, I was thinking about this, and I realized that many of us, we are loving to a point. So let me put it this way. We will be polite enough during huddle group, during life group, but after that, I'm not going to reach out to this person. We can at least tolerate huddle group, even though they're like people I would not hang out with. We will help people as long as it doesn't inconvenience our schedule. 
We will reach out to people and do things because we don't want to look bad in front of other people because I have a reputation to hold. We'll talk to unlovable people during fellowship until someone better comes along. Have, has that ever happened to you? So someone's talking to you and then someone comes in and you're like, okay, I'll, I'll talk to you later, see you later, and then now they're over here. What Paul says is to keep on loving and growing in humility more and more. Why? Because love and humility will demonstrate itself into three things. Sustaining a quiet life. And it's not talking about being silent. It simply has a sense of meaning of sense of restfulness. A quiet life is at peace. It's okay trusting that God will take care of it. That's when you know someone is humble is because they're not freaking out. Okay, how many of you guys know somebody who always freaks out all the time? You know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you are like, yeah, yeah. Like, be, living a quiet life means there is a peace and a restfulness. Trusting in God, that's humility. Another thing he talks about is stop being nosy. Do, do you know somebody who's nosy? <laughs> They're all up in your life. They're always trying to find out. They're asking questions. Because why? Because when you start consuming with other people's lives, who, who do you f fail to focus on? Your own sins. Your own issues. Because you're so busy with other people's lives, what they're not doing, what they sh should be doing. And lastly, succeed at hard work. These three things. Sustain a quiet life, stop being nosy, and succeed at hard work. They all reflect humility. Why? Because if you think about this last one, I, 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 was, giving some, I was sitting there, I was giving some thought before I wrote some things down. I, I, I just said, what is it about working hard and being successful and working hard? How does that show humility? And I realized when you connect it to what Paul was saying earlier and in other portions of Scripture, he said that I did not inconvenience you by demanding you to give me money. So Paul, what he's trying to say is that person who doesn't work He's taking advantage of the generosity of people in the community, in the church. When he or she could be working to get the money so they won't be a burden to other people, they're so self-centered and it's all about them that, that they take advantage of the generosity of people so they will give money to them. And Paul is saying that is not humble. That is, in fact, pride. So if we're going to pursue holiness, we also have to pursue humility and therefore the ultimate goal in verse 12 is that when we walk pursuing holiness walk in pursuing humility then it will become a witness to those people who are on the outside in verse 12 i want to just close with at least hopefully some sense of the gospel in this and give you some hope in this. The one thing, as I mentioned, was that our walk with Jesus is more important than our talk about Jesus, how we live. And there's a verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, that I think is very poignant for just closing out this point here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, in the New Living Translation says this, He, being Jesus, personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. 
for some of us in this room who are in addictive sexual immorality, pornography, it could be a lot of things. You might be in a relationship, all this stuff that's outside of marriage. In many ways, you don't even know it, but you're wounded. Because if you want to break it down, looking at a screen, we're just looking at a thousand, I don't know, 12,000 K pixelation of light. Think about it. You're just looking at light that's shining through your screen. But there's something that's attached to it that could numb your hurt. Or when you fail in something that makes you feel like more powerful. That's why you turn to that video game. In fact, I always tell people, log when you do these things and you realize the amazing connection. People failed an exam, so they're depressed because they feel like a failure. So what do they do? They go to the video game, which they're pretty good at, and then they dominate everybody, you know, with their headset, you know, yeah, I'm going to kill you. And I'm like, yeah, champion, more points. Because you suck at life, so now you want to succeed in a, in a world that it's not real. It is, Pastor. I have community here, okay? You do you. do you. But you're not succeeding in life. We are wounded. Therefore, we turn to a lot of things to numb that pain. What First Peter says is what? That Jesus took those wounds and it was placed on him. He went to the cross. He died on the cross. And it says, by his wounds, now we are healed. So we no longer live for ourselves, but we're able to live righteously or live right because of what Christ has done for us. Why? Because he carried all those sins, those sexual sins, all those things. He carried it, bore it on his body, bore the shame, and went to the cross and he died. And as we are wounded and turning to all these things of this world, through his wounds, now we're completely healed. That's the gospel. And so if I could encourage you with anything, I don't know what addictions you have to or maybe what relationship or what thing that you're involved in, things that you would be ashamed to even share it with anybody. I want you to think about the cross. And it was for that reason that Jesus died, and by his wounds we will be healed. We want to grow in holiness, not because we're afraid, but we love him because he first loved us. And we're motivated to please him. No one else, but we want to please the God of the universe who created us. That means that we're going to have to do something. You can't just leave here and say, okay, that was good. Okay, I get it. You got to do something. And this is what I'm just challenging you before you leave this morning. You got to make a decision. And I, I want to give you some practical things to really help you to overcome. I want you to be overcomers. I want, there, there have been people, I, there are so many people who have overcome through the gospel message. Doesn't mean they, they don't fail ever. They'll fail here and there, but they're still trying to move forward because it, it's about Jesus. The first thing I would say is repent quickly of your sins. The longer you just kind of avoid it because you feel bad again, and why do I go through the cycle that you've already lost? You've, you've got into Satan's hands. 
when you sin and you realize this is all, repent quickly. Yeah, I know sometimes you don't feel it, but just do it in faith because the Bible tells us. Repentance is opening the door for the reconciliation which Christ has already purchased. So we're just opening our hands to receive what God has given. So repent quickly of our sins. Second thing is this. Renew your mind. The, some of the stuff that you're listening to or watching, I, I didn't even go into, like for some of you women, like these fantasies, these, like, these stories. Like there are, there, there's a whole genre <laughs> I'm hearing that women get into because it's about fantasy. And that's where you feel your lust. It might not be physical, like guys, like pornography in that way, but there's a whole genre where it's about fantasy. And that's where you lust. So you got to renew your mind. Make sure you get in the Word. Think, that's what Philippians 4 says, right? Whatever's true, whatever's lovely, whatever's praiseworthy, anything that's excellent, think of such things. Renew your mind every single day. I always tell people, have a verse that you keep on saying over and over again. Taking good things, read good things, watch good things. I heard there's all these shows on Netflix now uh, with, uh, from Korea where they're, you know, and I'm like, what are they trying to do? It's, it's eye candy. So maybe some of you have to make a commitment. I'm not going to watch this. That's part of me renewing my mind. Number three, replace bad habits with good habits. It's that simple. Because some of the things that we're doing are bad habits. We just continue to train ourselves with dopamine and reinforcement. Replace it with something that's different. You cannot do it on your own strength. But start making commitments and having people help you, which is the last one. Is find good accountability. Receive good accountability. And good accountability is not just like, so how are you doing? As you're eating your chicken. That's installing those kind of apps and then all the websites go to your friend. And you're like, that's good accountability. Hey, have you struggled with this area? No, man, it's been good. And the next question is, are you, are you being truthful? Uh, no, okay, yeah, I struggle. That's good accountability. Oh, this one person, like, I'm always stumbling over, I'm struggling, and none of this. And here you are fellowshipping, and then God, that brother's like, hey, come here, I want to show you something. You know, that, that's good accountability. Let's focus on the cross. God made sex. It's a good thing but within the boundaries in which he created. And if we can actually love God passionately, not in our sinful lust, love God for who he is and what he has done, it will literally transform your life and we will be witnesses to the world. If there's one area that the world cannot overcome on their own strength or power, it is this area. That's why we as believers, on our own we cannot. We're going to be just like the world. But as we renew our minds, as we make this commitment, find this com uh, accountability, and we pray and ask God to help us. If there's any area that I believe it will be the greatest witness, it's this one area. Because we live in a sea of sexual immorality in this world. You see it everywhere. In Netflix, in, in websites, in everything all around us. It is, it is blatant. It's right up in your face. 
if we can live in holiness, I'm telling you right now, they will see the glory of God for his name's sake. Let us make that commitment together. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.